Thanks for tuning in to High Green, the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society's official podcast. High Green is funded by your membership in the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, and any opinions expressed throughout the show are solely those of the owner. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, if you're interested in learning more about our organization, you can visit our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but no. it, it's a B&M story and it's a good one. And the next thing you know, we hear 119 getting out of town with his steam engine working like the hell. He's going up by way of Rutland. We'd like to thank you for your support this past year. It was a tough one. But certainly, we were able to get a lot of new content out to our followers and members, and that's something that really helped us get along throughout the year. If you'd like to make your mark and support the Society and join the Society in our efforts, you can head on over to our website, BMRRHS, and if you're not a member, sign up to become one. Your membership dues go directly to fund the Society and our efforts, and you'll also receive our famous glossy magazine, the B&M Bulletin, several times a year, and our newsletter published bi-monthly. It's a really great way to show your love for the Boston and Maine and New England railroading. And as a member, you can join one of our committees and get right into it. You can find all the info you'll need right on our website. All right, so thanks for listening to High Green. This is the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society's podcast. I'm Rick Kafori, and I'm here tonight with two members of the Society, Neil Rousseau and Andrew Rydell. You've heard them before on previous episodes. And we're joined tonight by a couple guys from a really cool project that has recently come on to uh, the radar up here in New England. Uh, two members of the Twin Forks chapter of the NRHS, that's the National Railway Historical Society. We're joined tonight by Adam Brower, the president, and Jerry Jules, the vice president. Thanks for coming on, guys. No problem. Thanks for having us. So basically, um, we got contacted by Twin Forks folks a little while ago about a project. They have an Osgood Bradley passenger coach, uh, which was kind of in ubiquitous Boston and Maine, uh, a few other railroads as well. Uh, passenger coach from sort of the end period of traditional train set passenger coaches. Um, and it's a really neat piece that kind of came out of the woodwork. We weren't too sure about where it had gone and they have it and they're doing some work on it and they're going to tell us the story of how it got there and basically what their plan is for this piece of BNM history. So really kind of a cool effort here. So if you guys could just tell us a little bit about yourselves, kind of how you got into railroad preservation uh, and where your personal interests lie. Uh, Adam, if you want to go ahead and start off with that. Sure. So um, I actually, one night, uh, there were scrapped. There were some cars that were supposed to be scrapped in Riverhead Yard, mm-hmm. um, far out east on the island for me at the time. And I was in college, and Gerard was with college in college with me. And he was like, "Yo, bro, these these cars are about to get scrapped. Let's <laughs> go. We got to get parts off of them. We got to get stuff uh, so that we can use it for the ones we have." And uh, I just got dragged into it, and it's been, you know. I saw opportunities. Literally dragged into it, by the way. Literally, <laughs> yeah, literally dragged into it. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with the community and I saw the, 
you know, it was kind of stagnating a little, but I saw a lot of opportunity and that's what I really liked about it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what exactly, uh, what, what are kind of your railroad interests? Uh, you know, what roads do you uh, kind of find yourself gravitating towards? Obviously down in that, you know, metropolitan Long Island area, I'm sure you have some local interests, right? Um, well, actually, before I got, before Gerard dragged me into this, I really didn't watch trains or go, uh, okay. yeah, I really didn't get into it. <laughs> Nice. Um, New York and Atlantic's kind of cool, but you know, I, I'm more of a, you know, community oriented kind of guy. That's so. good. Recent convert. We like that. <laughs> so Jerry, how did you get into preservation and, uh, you know, what is your, what are some of your things that got you into sort of this whole, whole crazy community that we're involved with? Well, you crazy is right. That's for sure. <laughs> An understatement. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I've been into trains as far back as I can remember. I mean, I'm 26 years old. I was born in the waning years of the cool equipment on Long Island. Yeah. Uh, the Jeep 38s, the MP15s hauling passenger trains with an FA or an F7 on the rear. I vaguely remember those, and just ever since then, I've been into trains. You know, the Pentrex videos. Uh, mm-hmm. For people my age, you may remember "There Goes a Train." <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's what I grew up with. Sure. Um, I got into the scene a little bit in 2010 because my mother found out about a chapter called the Long Island Sunrise Trail (NRHS), mm-hmm. um, and from there, I went and then I joined the Oyster Bay Railroad Museum for a little while. And then I gravitated out east. I was part of another museum out there. And eventually, I noticed the cars were not in the best condition. And one day I said, okay, I'll take care of it. Yep. And I painted a couple and it just it took off from there. And eventually, there was a whole thing, a vacancy on, in Twin Forks. And I mm-hmm. became VP just like that. <laughs> and ever since then, we've been working on all of our equipment. Very cool. Yeah, and it's neat to see some some younger folks, you know, involved in this preservation project. One of our first episodes of this podcast, which is pretty new, uh, was a couple of guys down in uh, southern New Hampshire that are working on restoring a BNM SW9, and they're within our age bracket as well. So, uh, really? it's kind of, yeah, it is kind of cool to see, you know, this this newer preservation uh, movement kind of coming up with people uh, who weren't around to see this stuff when they were, you know, young. So definitely kind of cool oh yeah there, there is a list um and it's what you wouldn't expect from someone in new york i'll yep. tell you that right now um it's the new york ontario western oh okay yep uh the southern pacific uh it's it, in the 80s though it's got to be sp in the 80s <laughs> sure. with the light package and the coat of chrome and all oh, that yeah. oh yeah um the milwaukee road yep and uh the katie mkt sure yeah 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 those yeah, are my big four. It's cool because, you know, a lot of us, you know, uh, that's the beauty about this is that, you know, if you, if you research and learn about this stuff, even if you've never been to that part of the country before, you can always find something that you kind of, oh, yeah. that you kind of like. And that's the way it is with the B&M. You know, the B&M was a very regional, very kind of secular road. And, but we have, we have people in the society from Switzerland. We actually just got somebody in Norway who joined us and it's like, have you ever been to New England, you know, but maybe really? they haven't, you know, maybe they found an article or something and they saw something that I liked and that's the beauty of it. So definitely kind of a cool thing. 
Awesome. So kind of tracking off a little bit of that, um, the Twin Forks NRHS. So uh, this was something that I wasn't terribly familiar with uh, until I learned about the Osgood Bradley. Um, I think the other piece of equipment that I noticed that you guys had was uh, one of the uh, the short little transfer cabooses, the international cabooses, which uh, oh. kind of cool because the B&M had almost exact copies of yeah. those, which is kind of a cool connection that I didn't really realize either. But um, yeah, if you guys want to just tell us a little bit about this chapter, the NRHS, uh, where yeah. they're located, what you guys have for equipment, um, and just kind of uh, give us a rundown on who you are and what you do. Oh, I'll start off with the uh, history of the chapter, and then Gerard can yeah. get into the equipment. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so we were founded in 1996 mm-hmm. by Rich Goddard and a couple other uh, founding members. Rich is still with us on the board to this day, however many years later. Mm-hmm. It originally was founded as a fun group of guys just to get together, maybe restore a train or two. Um, as time went on, they get more equipment. Uh, they ended up, they were in Port Jefferson for a while. They ended up consolidating, moving to Riverhead Yard. Um, it kind of slowed down a bit. Uh, there was a lot of events early on, but then as the years went on, it kind of got a little slower. But things still happened. They still went to shows. We went to Amherst uh, train shows, mm-hmm. Greenberg, all that. Um, and after a while, uh, the president was ready to step down and let someone else take the reins and me and Gerard and a bunch of other guys got in and, uh, we kind of revised it. We've been restarted work sessions. We've gotten all the events going again and, uh, we're looking good. And we're in Riverhead, if you haven't gotten. Riverhead. Riverhead. <laughs> now, now, is that right alongside the Long Island Railroad there or? Yep, it's right behind their train station, and we're actually connected to the main line. Great. Well, that helps. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. And as far as the equipment, uh, Jerry, you want to give us a runaround of kind of your roster there? Oh, boy. Well, well, first, I just want to point out, you know, he's the administrative guy, and I'm the equipment guy. There you go. So, yeah. <laughs> but that's how we roll, you know. Yeah. Um, let's see. Our equipment. Let's see. What do we got? We have C60, which is a N22A caboose it's basically um the equivalent of the bay windows that you saw or the cupola cabooses that uh the b&m had like the really really short ones mm-hmm. um except without the cupola right uh that one is currently located in the transit museum in brooklyn uh we have c63 and c64 which are both n22b style cabooses uh those are like i said uh the type you had except without the cupola but these have bay windows right in them uh, we have Osgood, uh, the American Flyer car, the Osgood Bradley car, 4590. We have a Jordan Spreader in our collection. And we, uh, we have um, a Pittsburgh and Lake Erie 40-foot turn 50-foot boxcar, uh, 25624. And we have two uh, Sedalia-built Missouri Pacific offset cupola cabooses. Um, uh, 13388 and 13456. We have a quite a, an eclectic collection. <laughs> yeah, some some localized pieces, which is cool, and then a little bit of stuff from uh, a little further out, which kind of adds to the flavor. So that's nice to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jordan Spreader, that's that's a fit. Now those are I've seen uh, one of those out on the Cooperstown and Charlotte Valley. Uh, they have uh, DNH one, and uh, I think theirs is operational, which is unbelievable to see those things in medieval. Oh yeah, <laughs> we we have. Cool. Ours, um, one of the wings has an issue, but other than that, it's, to my knowledge at least, it's completely operational. It just needs a good coat of paint and a little bit of work on the bypass. 
And that's one thing I noticed about looking through uh, the website, by the way, uh, it's twinforksnrhs.org. Uh, great website. Uh, and uh, a lot of the stuff is painted, which is nice. You don't often see that yeah. with yeah. some of these smaller <laughs> preservation groups, um, you know, so that really, really adds. Well, to we're that. outside in the salt water rain, so <laughs> we can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we, um, I, when one of my biggest things, it's, it's got to look good. Right. Got to look good. Right. First of all, we're located basically in downtown Riverhead. Mm-hmm. 4590 looks a little, you know, because we're working on it. And the Jordan spreader needs a good coat of paint too, unfortunately, right now. But it's just difficult to paint, as you can imagine. Right. But at this time, uh, everything, like I said, everything's got to look good. If right. it doesn't look good, why bother keeping it? It's a nice little group. Definitely something that kind of caught my attention there when I was looking through, uh, getting a little bit more information on what you guys do. So definitely very cool Thank to you. hear. Before yep. we go on to the Osgo Bradley car, do you mind if I give a couple, shout out to a couple of volunteers? Absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. So um, there's two, two guys that are really great. They come out almost every weekend to help us out. Named Dan Castanello and Joe Bellavia. Welders, metalworkers. They're the ones who really got a lot of our projects started. And, you know, we're very oh, yeah. community in place. And we we really appreciate everything they've done. And I wanted to give a shout out to them. Oh, we are beyond grateful for what they've done. Seriously. Absolutely. No, no, good to hear it. Sounds like they're doing some good work. So very cool. Uh, so, yeah. So kind of moving on to sort of the meat of the uh, discussion here tonight and where we get kind of the B&M connection. Um, the Osgood Bradley that you guys have, um, which is, as I said earlier, something that a lot of B&M fans weren't aware uh, was still in existence. So just to kind of give a little bit of a rundown on the Osgood Bradleys, I pulled some information um, from an article in our B&M Bulletin, which is our, our semi-quarterly magazine. Uh, this article was actually specifically written back in um, 1974, so it's a little dated, um, but uh, this is from volume four, number two, which was the winter issue. Um, and talks about the Osgood Bradley coaches in relation to the B&M. And uh, basically what these are, are um, lightweight deluxe coaches that were built by the Osgood Bradley Car Company, um, which was a division of the Pullman Company at the time in Worcester, Mass. And these are often referred to as American Flyer coaches, which some people get an interest to because of the uh, hobby connection. And the reason that they were called American Flyer coaches that we were able to find out was because the AC Gilbert Company of New Haven uh, used them as a prototype for a series of passenger cars for the American Flyer line of S-Gage trains. Um, so that's kind of how they got that nickname, the American Flyer, which uh, was kind of neat because this was, you know, the Art Deco 1930s, kind of a, a very sleek name. Uh, so the B&M initially had 10 of these. Uh, they were 4585 to 4594. That was the first order. And they did very well, actually. They were well-received. So that resulted in 20 more being purchased, uh, which were 4595 through 5614. So all told, they had 30 of these uh, coaches. And uh, these were lightweight, so they were constructed of alloy steel uh, to kind of reduce the weight of the coach. And a few people have asked in talking about these coaches uh, what they were painted like. So when they received these cars in the 1930s, these were originally painted green uh, with Boston and Maine in gold lettering. That was centered in the middle of the car. And in 1943, the B&M started to paint their coaches into a red scheme. Uh, so that had changed. So they painted the coaches in the red scheme. And the name was centered beneath the windows with the number below it. So they were repainted in the 40s, which that red is kind of the scheme that you saw them running around 
until the end of the BNM service. Um, and kind of a cool thing about these coaches, they were pretty uh, ubiquitous with the Boston domain and they were also pretty, um, pretty versatile though. You would see them on most of the crack passenger trains, most of the fast long distance passenger trains up to Portland, uh, at the Fitchburg division. Uh, but they also were found on some of the branch lines, uh, specifically from Boston and North Conway, New Hampshire. Um, they were used regularly on that passenger run. And then they were also found uh, in far off places like Bangor, Vanceboro, Montreal, since they were interchanged in passenger service with other railroads. And they were also used on a number of rail fan excursions as well. So you'll see these coaches in some famous photographs. Uh, the ones that come to mind specifically are the final steam trip on the B&M in 1956 and also a run out on the Hillsborough branch, I believe in 52 or 54. Uh, so you saw them all over the place. They were, uh, they were pretty common to see. And then, of course, later on, the B&M invested in the largest RDC uh, self-propelled rail diesel car fleet in the world. So they started to part with their traditional passenger service coaches. And that's kind of where your guys' story comes in. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit about how did a B&M coach an Osgood Bradley coach wind up down in the New York area. Well, 4590 was purchased by the Long Island Railroad in the late 1950s mm -hmm. because uh, the Long Island needed new coaches. Honestly, their MP54 fleet was aging rapidly. They were approaching uh, 20, 30 years old. And the Pennsylvania Railroad did not want to purchase new um, coaches for its redheaded stepchild, honestly. Right. So they purchased a, a lot of stuff secondhand and 4590 was one of them. Uh, entered commuter service and eventually was rebuilt. I actually think it was rebuilt as soon as it came to the property. Mm -hmm. uh, it was into the configuration that you would think of when you think of a Long Island Railroad uh, commuter car. Uh, black and white tiles, uh, the Walkover seats, the Haywood Wakefield seats were ripped out and new uh, leather or fake leather, uh, I'm sorry, vinyl walkover seats were inserted. Mm -hmm. And it lasted like that really until its career as a commuter coach ended in, I think it was the mid 70s. At that point, a lot of them were taken out of service uh, and used as tool storage. And this car, this particular car was painted yellow. Well, it was painted in the orange and gray, then blue and uh, silver. I, I guess you'd call it silver marlin, silver marlin, blue and silver marlin. Mm -hmm. And it was used as an, as a alcohol car. So the interior was completely gutted. Yep. And all the seats were removed. Diamond plate was placed over the uh, tile flooring. And it lasted in alcohol service until the 1990s. Uh, alcohol, for those that don't know, that alcohol train is a train that has this these special third rail shoes. It sprays alcohol and other substances on the third rail to prevent icing. Okay. To prevent the third rail from icing over. Sure, sure. So 4590 and a handful of others were retired and a bunch were scrapped. 4590 and... Three other cars, yeah, three other cars sat in, to my knowledge, Dunkirk Street Yard. Mm -hmm. And finally, 4590 was donated to Twin Forks. And sadly, unfortunately, the uh, 4590s the, was in the best condition out of all of them. Right. Uh, there, there are actually two more located in Dunkirk Street Yard, but those things are 
like if you look at it wrong, it's going to fall apart. <laughs> it's sad, honestly. Sure, sure. Yeah. Cool storage. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, quite literally, there was one that was scrapped in 2016 because it was just so messed up. Right. The other two are currently used for part uh, freight car storage, mm-hmm. like a oh, freight car part storage. I'm sorry. Um, so you name it, it's in there. Yep. There's an old caboose stove, <laughs> journal bearing parts, there's brake shoes, brake keys, you name it. Yeah, not uncommon. Uh, the B&M did the same thing with a lot of their passenger coaches. I believe actually um, the rec train outfits that Pan Am uses uh, quite a few um, old coaches and I think some diners are still on that. And uh, I think that's like the only, one of the only actual rec train outfits in the country running around with equipment that's, you know, this old, all wow. these old passenger coaches that have been gutted and the windows plated over. And, but, uh, but yeah, that was, it wasn't uncommon for these past, like we said, you know, once they had modern equipment, they didn't need them anymore. So it was just, what can we do with them? Who can, who can we sell them to? Um, and I think actually, uh, I noticed that you got the Mopac shirt on there. Uh, the BMW oh, yeah. lightweight um, passenger coaches were sold to the Mopac, um, the um, the stainless steel coaches, and yeah. I think that was something. Something about that was illegal, and it caused the the president to go to jail or something like that. Pat McGinnis. Yeah, yeah. That was, um, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So there you go. A little bit of a connection there with the BNM. We got, we got our hands in more pies than you would think. So, but, <laughs> so very cool. So yeah, that's that's really neat. I mean, you know, it, it's something that a lot of people have no idea about. Once this stuff leaves New England, a lot to a lot of people, it, it's disappeared. But the fact that a lot of this stuff is still around, if you know where to find it, is really cool. So, Adam, do you have like some particulars about how the the Twin Forks chapter obtained this car uh, from? I assume the Long Island's ownership. So. Over, over time, we just got a lot of uh, pieces of equipment donated to us. Um, we had a contact on the railroad, a friend on the railroad, uh, before I was even involved in it. And, you know, the Jordan Spreader and the two Long Island cabooses came together. And eventually, the B&M car. And was there anything else in that donation, Gerard, at the time when they came in? Or they just didn't need that car anymore and they just left it in Riverhead? So that car came out with a another coach at the time along and then there was also a flat car that we had unfortunately before me and adam came in the other coach and the flat car have been scrapped okay uh, it, it's sad because honestly we could have used them but uh there's you know they were just too far gone right that's really it yeah, but basically the railroad just said, oh, these are yours now and dropped on your head. Oh, that's yeah, that's, yeah. That saves some steps, right? That's pretty, that's yeah. pretty nice. So. Yeah. It's basically, oh, you want our trash? Here's some trash. You right. Know. right. Yeah. <laughs> One man's trash, another man's treasure. There you go. So, exactly. Cool. So, yeah, and now you guys have it, which is good. Um, you know, it's in a spot where it'll be, it'll be safe. And since this is the best of the three, you know, obviously sometimes you have to cut your losses and, and just kind of focus on, you know, what you can save. And in this case, yeah. uh, this is what you can save. Uh, so, yeah, if you guys can kind of walk us through a little bit, what, what have you done on the coach so far? Uh, what have you noticed uh, that needs to be done on the coach? And what, have, what are the, some of the first things that you've started to work on in, in the process of you know, bringing this coach back? So we started with, we, we, we made it our tool car mm-hmm. uh, at first. So a lot of the shelving from uh, the alcohol service was still in there. A lot of, uh, even the generator is still in there from alcohol sure. service. And all of our tools were in this little, little caboose. You could barely walk in. There's photographs out there of the inside of the caboose before we did this. And 
you could easily get claustrophobic. Oh, sure, yeah. So we took all the tools we have, we put it all in the shelving, and we started, they had three compartments. They had the westernmost compartment, which was where all the electrical equipment was and all that stuff. So we took down that partition, so made the, the middle and westernmost compartments just one big room and left the engine room alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we then started taking out like a lot of the unneeded electrical conduit and stuff like that. Uh, there was one huge conduit that ran the length of the car that we're never going to use. So we, we took that out. Right. And we also started replacing windows. Uh, the windows that the Long Island put in, when, when these cars were built, yep. they had two pane glass with nitrogen in the middle. Uh, so it had two lips, so to say. Uh, when the Long Island Railroad rebuilt the cars, they took those windows out and replaced them with single pane uh, plexiglass. I think it's FRA glass, but I, sure. I, yep. I'm not 100% sure. Mm-hmm. And so we started taking them. When, when the railroad put the new windows in, they put them on the inside lip instead of the outside lip. Okay. So when water, so th- this is one of the problems we actually ran into. When it rains, water pools right in in the center part. Sure. So we started moving the windows out, and, and in the process, you can't even see out the windows. So we replaced them with regular plexiglass for the time being, mm-hmm. so we could actually get light in the car. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Other than that, that, that's that's really all we did. We started doing a lot of the. Uh, we we started doing inside of one of the cabin doors, uh, basically taking all the old paint off, putting on the new paint uh, primer. Uh, we did that to a couple of things. That's really all the small stuff we've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam could talk to you about more about the welding, and then I'll tell you about what needs to be done with the car. Cool. Let's do it. The other thing we got working is the lights, all the lighting fixtures. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Except, except in the vestibule, or do the vestibule ones work too? We did... Literally all but two lights. The women's room light does not work because um, when it was in Dunkirk, the the vent above the women's bathroom was sheared off and they never passed over it. And that was probably 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine what that would do to some electrical wiring. So we isolated the women's bathroom and one light from the one vestibule light. Otherwise, all the other lights in the car work. Good. That's a big step. So getting to the, the metal work and the, the stuff we've been doing on the exterior, because that's really where it needed the work. The What started off, the stairs had fallen down. So uh, they were actually just hanging off and they were hanging by a couple of bolts. Sure. Quite literally, actually. Quite literally. We have pictures of it. We we had to start by taking the trap out. Trap was com- was completely damaged. We have to actually clean it up and rebuild it. But the the stairs got taken off. We basically had to cut out a lot of the a lot of what was there because it was all rusted away and put brand new steel. Luckily, we worked with this company Tip and Steel. They donated a lot of steel to us. We were able to rebuild that area. We had to rebuild a lot of the structure around it because a lot of the Vertical supports had rusted away, and the the car is basically held together by a 16-inch sheet of metal. Oh, yeah. 
because uh, they were built to be white. They didn't want a lot of metal inside. The exactly. Yeah. So we, we did that. And then it took four of us to figure out how to lift this trap up and back into position and bolt it in while, while four guys are holding it. Yeah. I'm under the trap, by the way, pushing up with my feet. <laughs> we, uh, so we got that back up. We put new bolt, galvanized bolts in. We made sure everything was primed and everything so it didn't rust again, or mm -hmm. at least took a long time to rust. And then we had to open up the, the rest of the car. So we went down the entire length of the car. We cut open it like a 12 inch section uh, on the bottom part where there was a lot of sill rot. We found a lot of problems. As I said before, there was a one 16 inch thick piece of steel plate that was basically folded over a bunch of times that was just connecting the beams that went across the car with the beam with the vertical supports and there was nothing else. That plate was cracked. It was rusted away and I'm surprised the car didn't fall apart sooner. Yeah. Yes. We were, we got a donation of steel. Like I said, we replaced all the inside with tube steel and we've been welding it on, cutting it, you know, priming it, making sure that it stays together. And it's a lot of work. We've almost done the entire length of the car now making new vertical supports, like the whole nine yards going out inside replacing the structure. And that's what we've been working on. And after that's done, uh, we have to finish replacing the traps and the stairs on the other side because all of them have problems. Yep. And then reskin it and paint it. Mm -hmm. So definitely the lightweight nature of the car. I mean, it's kind of a blessing and a curse. You know, on one hand, it's it's probably less work than a heavyweight, I would assume. But at the same time, the lightweight nature, you know, there's less to work with. You know, so if it's really corroded, then it's really got to be addressed and fixed as soon as possible. So definitely, uh, and these aren't, you know, this is this is steel. This is you know the steel alloy. So it's oh yeah, it, it corrodes. It really does, especially down where you guys are with all the sea air and everything. So well, we and, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Well, we actually, where the women's bathroom was, where, where the women's bathroom is, mm -hmm. the vent that was sheared off, that was the worst part of the whole car. There was no floor. Right. The floor, you walked in and the floor went like this. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we ripped that floor out, that section of floor, I should say. We, we're going to replace that. The car needs a lot of work, but it's all doable. It's right. not beyond repair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. So uh, one of the things you asked before also, what, what needs to still be done to the yeah, car? Yeah, what do you guys have coming up? I'm sure you're parceling this out bit by bit by bit, but what, oh, what yeah. do you guys have kind of in the direct future to kind of work on? <clears throat> so in the direct future, uh, we have to finish the what's – I just – I for my brain, I think of it north, south, east, west side. Sure, yeah. Uh, so the south side of the car uh, currently – that's the side that's open. We have to finish up the, the horizontal support beams. Mm -hmm. Then we have to reskin the car. At the same time, on the southeast side, we have to take down that trap uh, and basically completely redo that section. In all honesty, we're probably going to have to redo also the floor in both vestibules mm -hmm. because the floor is actually rising in some sections. Once the south side is done, once that southeast vestibule is done, once the skin is done on the south side, we move to the north side. And basically, we're going to do exactly what we're doing here, uh, take out 
a section on the bottom, address the sill rot, take out the vestibule, uh, the traps, I'm sorry, the traps, redo those, remount those. The south, uh, northwest trap, if you walk down it, it actually shakes. Yep. And there, you, if you look hard enough, you can actually see it's not exactly connected to the car still. So. It's been sitting there a while. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. As these things are wont to do. Sure, sure. As they say, it's still there by force of habit. Right, right. Now, one thing that we were talking about with the uh, the group that's doing the, the SW9 down there, the 1228, um, was sort of the problems that you run into with this older equipment um, in terms of with restoration, uh, sometimes and oftentimes in the past 80 years, uh, <laughs> new technology mm-hmm. and new processes have come out and sort of made things um, obsolete and kind of make it difficult to do a really bare bones historical restoration. Now, obviously, this is a passenger coach, so it's different than a locomotive. You know, you, you need less less work on the electrical system. Less, you don't have to worry about a, a prime mover or anything like that. Um, but have you guys come across anything in terms of keeping a, like a historical mindset in mind where you're just going to have to go with a modern way of doing this versus like a rivet counter type historical restoration? You said the word, rivets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, quite literally. Um, I'm well, the kind of guy, I, I'm the guy who it's got to be done the right way, you know. Mm-hmm. So rivets is one problem. Because they don't, nobody really, to my knowledge, at least in our area, really does riveting like it was. Right. So that's one problem. Another problem is, well, I don't know if it's really a problem. So in our car, in the ceiling, the air conditioning, mm-hmm. the, the AC system is still there and it's complete. The motor's still there. The Freon base system is all there. We're oh, probably sure. going to. I think we're going to have to replace that. <laughs> I would think so, yeah. <laughs> uh, also, the heating in the car. Yeah. Um, we have to f- sit down and really think about it because all the heating ducts are still there. We still have all that. But the, the coils that, went, that ran along the floor are not there anymore. Okay. So we're probably going to have to figure something out with that too. As for the lighting in the car, the lighting is not original. Right. Uh, it's basically shop lighting. It's got that cage around the glass and all that. Uh, we're probably we're going to try to be as original as possible with that. But the key is as possible because I I have to do research on what the lighting looked like on the inside of this car. Yeah. Because there is evidence that it was changed, and the cars in Dunkirk still have like inserted lights inside of the in the ceiling yep this car didn't because those the cars in dunkirk it's like a square a square uh, housing this right. never had that so i'm i think it was two rows of um fluorescent lighting that went down the length of the car but i i need more research on that could be yeah i uh i'm not come to the i can't remember having ever seen any interior pictures of the coaches when they are on the BM, but if they exist we probably have them <laughs> somewhere yeah. so i'm sure that we could do some digging but um everything <laughs> oh yeah well, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure you won't have any problem with that um what so the heating in this this wasn't a steam heated with this one and battery heated is that no this was so the car was steam heated the okay. car was in fact steam heated it it has a lot it has a bit of the steam piping left believe it or not 
Yep. Even after all these years and probably two, three rebuilds. Right. Um, it actually has a lot of its original cloth electrical wiring and conduit underneath as well, sure. which blew me away when I found it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Put that in a museum, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, other than that, I mean, I know for a fact the car was powered. Yep. There were two ways of powering these cars. Uh, one was from car to car. But that was a backup. So, uh, so the car had an actual driven generator underneath it. Okay. And that like produced power for a battery pack, and that's what powered the car. Well, we also found evidence of electrical wiring that would be connected to other cars. So, what I think, if this wasn't a Long Island add-on, which don't quote me on this, if let's say one of the battery packs cracked out en route two car the neighboring cars would power that car okay that again could, yeah that could very well be i also do know that um when these cars were on the b&m at least in the 50s they would have used them primarily before the bud car showed up primarily with gp7 power and the b&m's gp7s um, were kind of distinctive because at the end of them they had a square cabinet kind of similar to the cnj and the cnw which had HEP, head-end power, inside that cabinet. So it's possible it may have been electrically connected to the locomotive for, for, for head-end power as well. So, okay. yeah. Because um, I have seen some video. We actually have a video clip somewhere of a, a B&M Jeep 7 with some of the American Flyer coaches behind it. So, um, so, yeah, it was definitely something, you know, they had a couple different ways to power them, I'm sure. But the wheel, the wheel generator is something that you do see pretty, pretty commonly on, on those coaches, yeah. So. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to, we're probably not going to be able to put that back together too. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm going to do everything <laughs> in my power. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. But. And that's, you know, that's something I think, you know, I, I think when you get down to it, you know, th these coaches, you know, when they were around, they had a fleet of guys that knew how to fix them, knew what to do with them, had parts on hand, you had shop complexes that could handle them. You don't have that today. So you kind of just have to do what you can. It's going to look on the outside like it did. You know, it's going to be pretty damn close. It's going to be as close as you can get in 20, 2021, you know. I mean, I've been told that also the New Haven cars were very similar to the Boston Mains cars. Mm -hmm. yep. So I'm really what I'm doing is I'm looking anywhere I can for parts sources. I mean, yeah. if anything, I try to be resourceful and Twin Forks as a whole as well tries to be as resourceful as possible. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to talk about here at the end, uh, once we get to the end, is, is kind of talking about how people who are interested can help you guys out in that respect. But um, I do know, and I don't quote me on this, but the Shelburne Falls Trolley Museum, I think, has either a Maine Central or a Bangor and Aroostook American Flyer. I think they have a... Man, I, I can't remember exactly. Bangor and Aroostook. Yes, and I don't know how similar those were to the B&Ms, but that's the only other one I can think of in the general area. I I know there's two, oh man, there's two New Haven ones mm -hmm. up in like Kentuck or at the Rare Museum in New England, something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, that could be. Yep, that could very well be, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so there, I mean, there, you know, there, I don't know, but like you said, these were most of these, if not all of them, uh, were at some point relegated to work train. I know the, the Bangor and Rustic yeah. and maybe the main central ones as well. So, you know, the likelihood that they're going to look exactly like they did in passenger service, you know, probably pretty, pretty limited. So, 
I find it's pretty hard to get uh, interior shots of these cars or for some reason. Please. Yeah. So I, in my guess, uh, just going off of what I can think of would be um, <clears throat> the place you would probably want to try were the official PR departments for the railroad, specifically the B&M, because when these coaches uh, came around and when they were still being used, the B&M was very involved in public relations. So they had people going out and taking pictures of people on the snow trains, for example, up to North Conway. And these coaches were regular on the snow trains up to North Conway. And they would have models pose in them with skis or whatever. So I would think the PR departments would probably be one place where you'd really be able to find interior shots. I can't think there were many rail fans, you know, riding regular passenger trains, standing up and getting a shot of the interior of a coach. (laughs) You know, I mean, um, I'm guilty of that, but that's just, well, yeah, but you know, this was also, you know, back when you had to have film and you had to have all this stuff. So, but I do know that we did just acquire a lot of the original negatives from the B&M's PR department. I don't know who donated them to us, but a lot of these were taken in the fifties, forties. So uh, once we go look through those, if there's anything Osgood Bradley, I have a feeling that you guys will definitely be able to, to use that as research. So. Oh, yeah. Um, so that kind of brings us to uh, kind of the future plan. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about the the outside of the coach, the aesthetic look that it's going to have. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit. Maybe Adam, you can speak a little bit to this. What is the the chapter's plan for this coach once it's finished? Um, is it going to be roadworthy at all, or is it going to be simply a static display? Um, just kind of, what's your future plan for the coach? Well, one thing we want to do with all our equipment is make it so that it could roll and make it so that it could run on the railroad. And we don't want, as much as it's, some things may be static display like our Jordan spreader, but something like the B&M coach, we want that to be able to run. And, and it would be great if it was. I mean, think of think of what, what all the people who would come out to see that. Oh, yeah. Initially, we're going to start using it as like an office slash uh, gift shop kind of car. Sure. Eventually, once we have enough space and once we've developed enough, we want to turn it into like a parlor car mm-hmm. or something similar, maybe passenger cars. We'll see when we get to that point, but it's definitely something that we want to run and we want people to use and we want people to see. Right. Now, would that involve changing out the, uh, I assume it still has journal, journal bearings underneath it? Yeah, it's plain bearings, yeah. Plain bearings, yeah. So you probably have to swap those out. But I've seen, I've seen situations where they keep the original boxes and, and do put roller bearings inside. Um, so I yeah. assume it would be possible. So one of the things... Um, I'm not 100% sure about if we'll be able to do that with this car. It could be real size. I, again, right. I have to do a lot of research on that. But also, we'll have to remove the um, journal box lids. It's, I think that's an actual FRA thing. Uh, yeah. Could be, yeah. yeah. Um, also, I want to add to Adam that we're, we're going to be returning it to. It's uh, Minuteman Red. That's, that's <laughs> yep. what we're going to be returning it to. Yep. Yeah, that would be uh, definitely be identifiable. Um, and uh, it is more of a red, that's for sure. People sometimes get it confused for a um, darker maroon, but it's definitely a red. So very cool. And that's, you know, that's obviously all this stuff is way down the line. But the fact that you guys have it parceled out piece by piece, small things first, get it stabilized. Um, that's definitely the important, important thing. Um, the exterior is definitely going to be done before the interior. And that we're looking at maybe by next year, we'll have maybe by the summer we can have a lot of that done. Good. That's great. Yeah. And like, I, like we said earlier, it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a monumental task, but um, the fact that it is in decent shape is certainly going to help um, for the most part. So very cool. So now obviously uh, to kind of connect, you know, the B&M interest and, and the Long Island interest, and it's really cool that there is kind of this fusing of the two 
two interests and two groups. How can people up here in B&M country involved in the society or just, you know, interested in, you know, passenger equipment from this period, how can they get involved? What, what do you guys recommend in terms of uh, volunteering? Uh, what sort of avenues do you have for that kind of thing? So we're always open to new volunteers. If there's someone who wants to come down here and, and put in some time, we, we have a lot of things for them to do on this car. There's metal work, if they're good at that. We have training courses. We have people who can train people on metal work. So if you don't know how to do it, you can come down and train how to do it. And we'll, then we'll get you set up. Welding, cutting, measuring, all that, all that volunteer work, painting. We have stuff for everybody. Volunteering is definitely a big way to help. Another way to help, we have a GoFundMe page. I'll send you guys a link to it and you can put that up. You know, projects like this, the more you do, the, the more it costs. We were fortunate enough to get um, over $1,000 worth of steel donated. And uh, we got a $4,000 grant from the NRHS. So we're, we're pretty good. We have money for now to keep the project going, but you know, it always costs more things that come up. If you cut a cut the car open, there's always more things that come up and little things that you find as you go along. Right. Right. And addressing things that might pop up, you know, down the road, you never know with this. Yep. So, awesome. Very cool. Well, anything else you guys like to plug here before we kind of wrap things up? If you guys have any photographs of 4590 in service, it would and, be very much appreciated. You know, there are a lot of people involved with the society. We have a few people who um, routinely write columns in our bulletin about passenger equipment. Um, we have a lot of people that have private photo collections and that sort of thing, access to materials. Um, so certainly we'll have people on the lookout. We've got people on the lookout for, I think I've got kind of a, a mental roster right now of B&M <laughs> equipment. We've got the, the SW9. Uh, there's an F7 up in Conway that's being worked on. A Jeep 9 just got purchased. One of them. Bluebird Jeep 9s just got uh, preserved. So that's going to be uh, – and now we've got a passenger coach too. And, of course, the 3713 over in, over in Scranton, you know. So, the like idea is to run our coach behind that. I was going <laughs> to – now, see, I was going to bring it up. I didn't want to sound ambitious. But it's a very yeah. good chance that when the, when the 3713 last ran under steam, that coach was behind it. So um, – that would be kind of we, a yeah. reunite, you know. Yeah, we reach out to we we're, we're in communication. Good, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah. Also, um, if you guys have any photograph, detailed shots of these cars, I don't care what it is. It could mm -hmm. be the inside of the journal box. I can use it. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, well, some yeah. of the stuff, you know, once you once you reach out, you know, you'd be surprised what you can dig up, really. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> somebody's got it in their attic. I guarantee it. So. Yeah, hope so. <laughs> so <laughs> they're willing to dig it out for us. Right, exactly. That's the hardest part. Yeah. Uh, so, Andrew and Neil, did you guys have any uh, additional questions, comments that you wanted? I know you guys said you may have some questions that you wanted to add here to uh, to the interview. So, if you have anything, uh, feel free to jump right on in. Uh, I just want to say, guys, I find it very impressive and admirable that you're both. Uh, you jumped right into this project. You're both very involved in not just preserving it, but you want to learn about the history. You want to learn about the heritage because let's, let's be honest. I mean, a lot of this older rolling stock, I mean, you know, sometimes you'll be driving down a country road. You'll see like an old diner sitting in a field that was clearly a train car, or you'll be driving by like, you know, a large salvage junkyard. You might see some parts here or there you're like oh that could have been a train car at some point it's uh it's very easy for a lot of this history to just kind of get lost in the shuffle and i just want to you know give a big uh big recognition to both of you guys for just taking the effort to 
go the extra mile, not just preserving the car, but preserving it in the way that it was meant to be preserved. I think it's, it sounds like a really exciting project. And I mean, I definitely can't wait to hear about the progress over the months and the coming years. Thank you. We actually make, we actually make a point to learn about the history of all of our cars. Uh, because what's the point of preserving it if you, A, don't have the time or the resources to preserve it, but also, you know, why preserve it if you don't, if you don't want to know the history of it? Right. You know, I mean. Gerard is in charge of finding out every little detail of history that he can <laughs> and keeping it with the chapter archives. You've given him a sentence. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because I, I equate it, I could equate it to like an archaeological dig. Oh, yeah. We, because mm. when we were taking apart the bottom sill of the car, for example, uh, we found the crack that Adam mentioned was actually evidence of a sideswipe. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I couldn't, but it wasn't really sideswipe, but like an end to end bump. And it was a pretty hard one. <laughs> well, now that you mention that, one of the worst wrecks on the Boston and Maine in 1955 was in Swampscott, Massachusetts, where a conventional passenger train from Portsmouth got rear-ended by an RDC. And actually, I think it was one or two RDCs, and that, I mean, it sheared the RDC in half, and it was a pretty hor- horrific wreck. But it's very possible that, that this car was involved in that wreck, now that you mention it, compared if to the you RDC. You can find your pictures of that wreck, let us know. I'll have to, I'll have to find if you can find the roster there. of that plane, let, There's let another can o- yeah, there's another, Actually, who knows, you know? Yeah, guys, um, if you want, I can do a little digging into the history of that wreck. Um, it was actually funny. I was earlier today, I was looking at one of my B&M books that did have a reference to that wreck. So mm-hmm. there's definitely there's definitely information out there about that wreck. I know for certain there's actually a plaque at the uh, Swampscott uh, Boston Main Railroad, well, MBTA now, but used to be the Boston Main. If you guys are ever in the area, I highly recommend checking it out. Really neat old train station, but Anyway, there is a plaque there commemorating that horrific wreck. So, you know, there's definitely uh, details out there. Um, Yeah, you know, if we find anything more about it, we can absolutely pass that along to both of you. Yeah, seriously, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I can even tell you on one of our uh, Long Island cabooses, you can see like huge scrape marks on the side of it, and apparently, I haven't gotten the full story, but apparently a boxcar got loose as this thing was as our caboose was uh fouling a switch and kind of made contact is the light way of putting it right (laughs) yeah so like i said looking at our cars and getting to know the history and not just through papers and all that but even looking at the car looking at it closely is i can equate it in all seriousness to like an archaeological dig oh yeah I mean, yeah. it is. That's what it is, honestly. So, yeah, I right. love making that reference. It's it's that's exactly it's it's just archaeology, yeah. a different yeah. different type than looking for fossils. But <laughs> you know, it's in some ways, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a pain when you have to deal with the Long Island Railroad shoddy repairs, and now you have to oh, do please. it all the way. <laughs> well, the B and M didn't have a great reputation for that either, especially in the later years. So. <laughs> something that we can definitely relate to but uh awesome so either you guys have anything else that you wanted to chime in about here before we uh kind of wrap it up or if anyone has any other questions i think it looks like neil's got something i got a quick one um so you guys said you want to try and get it to um operating condition do you have an idea where it'll operate can you guys operate 
Do you have like a yard you can operate in or anything in the area? Once our yard is fenced in, we could probably run a little bit back and forth in that. The other alternative, we have this line in Calverton that um, it doesn't run passenger service. So it's like it only runs freight service. It's a lot easier to like run something else on there. If we had to, we wouldn't be disrupting mainline service. And that's the other alternative of where we would run it. And and we'd be also open to uh, eventually, I mean, uh, lending it to another railroad, such as maybe the 3713 guys, to run it behind their engine for a little while just for, you know, because it's cool. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. guys, Long Island's close enough to a lot of places where you could certainly, you know, as long as you can run it through interchange, you know, it shouldn't be too much. Well, I mean, right, right. And we don't want to talk too big about that, but you know, you never know. So yeah, don't kill my dreams, please. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, you guys, thank you so much for coming. This is really great. Um, certainly, we'll we're, we'll be following up on this project as updates are are posted. Uh, I think these guys said they'll have some videos for us, so we'll definitely be posting those to our page. Um, I'm certainly planning on writing something up about this in our newsletter. Uh, so it could be a little bit, but uh, certainly something I'd like to write up there. And, you know, all hands on deck. If you guys are B&M fans out there and you have pictures, information, uh, just about anything, uh, oral history, you name it, um, on these Osgood Bradley, specifically this coach in particular, um, you know where to find them. TwinForksNRHS.org is their website. Uh, do you guys have a Facebook page as well? Yes, we do. It's uh, Twin Forks NRHS. We also have an Instagram, which is uh, Twin underscore Forks underscore chapter. Awesome. And we'll have all that contact information here on the podcast listing and on the Facebook page as well. So if you guys would like to help out, I'm sure they would appreciate it. All right. Well, Adam and Jerry, thank you guys so much for coming tonight. We appreciate you having on and uh, we hope you guys have a good night. You too. Thank you for having us. Have a good night. That's all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed today's show. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society or joining us, you can visit our website, www.bmrrhs.org.